Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 56, The World of Darkness, Part 2. Last week we covered the overall history of the World of Darkness line of games. Then we did a deep dive on Vampire the Masquerade and Werewolf the Apocalypse. However, those are far from the only games in the line, and since we didn't have enough time to get to them all last week, we're featuring them again this week so that we can be as thorough as we can be. So without further ado, let's crank up the tour bus and pick up where we left off last week. First up on today's tour is Mage the Ascension. Mage the Ascension was designed by Stuart and Stephen Week and Christopher Early and was released on August 19, 1993 at Gen Con. It was the first book in the line not written by Mark Reinhagen, though one of his creations from Ars Magica, The Order of Hermes, was featured in the game. As all five books in the initial run of the line, Mage got itself a second release in December of 1995. A revised version of Mage the Ascension was released in 2000, and Onyx Path Publishing released the 20th anniversary edition on September 23, 2015. So what's Mage all about? As you would expect, the characters in Mage are, wait for it, mages. Well, more to the point, people who discover they have the ability to manipulate reality through magic. That discovery process is called the Awakening. The Awakening is described as a mysterious and potentially traumatic experience, but rather than lay it all out here, let's just skip to the end, which is where the mage ends up with the ability to do magic. Once they're awakened, mages can learn how to do all sorts of magic, which will allow them to change reality, alter will, and so on and so forth. This is done via will, well, their own anyway, beliefs and special magical techniques. How they do these things is part of the central conflict in the game itself. There are four factions struggling against each other and using all levels of reality to prove their beliefs are the greatest. This is called the Ascension War. We'll get deeper into factions in a minute. Beliefs are a huge theme in Mage, and they form the basis for magic. The techniques used to cast spells have a wide range of variants, from ancient shaman style to medieval sorcery to religious miracle working to science or science fiction technology. This makes Mage way different than what we'd seen to this point. To have all of these different types of styles makes Mage a unique style of game. It should also be noted that how a mage can alter reality is limited only by their belief. Another way to look at it is this. Beliefs, practices, and tools form a paradigm for the mage, and that provides them with a framework to understand reality or to explain how the universe works. This also allows them to use techniques to change reality according to the beliefs they have. Let me take this one directly from Wikipedia because it's the best basic description I've seen. An alchemical paradigm might describe the act of wood burning as the wood, quote, releasing its essence of elemental fire, end quote, while modern science would describe fire as, quote, combustion resulting from a complex chemical reaction, end quote. So your belief defines how you can alter reality. And I know I'm not doing these rules justice in detailing them here, just trust me when I say it's some of the coolest magic rules I've seen yet. And check it out if you can get a copy of it. Moving on, another reason for grabbing a copy of the book is the rich, detailed history of magic and mages in the game. It is seriously rich and goes into great detail to explain why things are the way they are in the modern time, which is when the game is set. 
Okay, so I mentioned factions a moment ago, and I only feel it right to lay them out here and give a bit of description of them so that you have a better understanding of how they work in the game. The Council of Nine Mystic Traditions, called the Traditions in Later Editions, is an alliance of secret societies to protect reality against the growing disbelief of the modern world, the technocracy, the marauders, and the nefandi. The nine traditions are Akashic Brotherhood, ascetics, martial artists, and monks. Celestial Chorus, pious believers in a supreme being that encompasses all gods ever worshipped. Cult of Ecstasy, seers into using sensory stimulation, consciousness expanding techniques, and meditation. Dream Speakers, shamanistic emissaries to the spirit world. Euthanatos, thanatonic will workers and killers who draw from the legacies of death cults in India, Greece, the Arabs, and the Celts. Order of Hermes, formalized sorcerers, alchemists, and mystics drawing from the classical practices. Sons of Ether, inspiration-oriented scientists dedicated to fringe theories and alternative science. Verbena, blood shamans, healers, primordial witches, and warlocks. And virtual adepts, technological adepts who can deal in informational wizardry. The next group involved in the intrigue is the Technocratic Union, now, while there are multiple groups, it should be noted that all of the groups share the same paradigm, unlike the nine mystic traditions. The groups are the Technocrats of Iteration X, which are experts in the area of physical sciences, Technocratic Progenitors, masters of the biological sciences, Technocrats of the New World Order, maintain control of information and knowledge, Technocrats of the Syndicate, control the flow of money and power, and technocrats of the Void Engineers. They are explorers of the unknown. Next up are the Marauders. They are typically chaos mages and also typically insane. Needless to say, everything they do is the antithesis of what other mages would do, and they're believed to be foul, profane, and, well, you know. Last up are the Nefandi. The Nefandi are, for a lack of a better word, the bearers or representatives of entropy. They're morally inverted and spiritually mutilated. In other words, they are intentionally taking actions to make the world worse and bring on its ultimate end. There's a bunch of fun guys right there, don't you think? I could get more into the spheres of magic and sigils, but I think we've presented enough here to whet your appetite. I do want to close out this section by noting that Mage the Ascension got an average of 8 out of 10 for reviews and even won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Rules of 1995. Next up, we take a look at the fourth book in the initial line, Wraith the Oblivion. Wraith was written by Mark Ryan Hagen and was originally published and released on August 18, 1994, as a part of White Wolf Publishing's presentation at Gen Con. As with the other four books in the original line, Wraith got a second edition, which was released on August 8, 1996. Just like the first release, this second edition also got a prime release at Gen Con. At some point during the life of the game, Sam Chup and Jennifer Hartshorn were brought on board to handle producing materials for the line. Most gamers and reporters on the tabletop role-playing game business have reported and agree that Wraith was the least successful, both commercially and popularly, of the entire line, and its production was suspended permanently in 1999. However, when the time for a 20th anniversary edition of the game came along, Wraith wasn't left out of the celebrations. Onyx Path Publishing, which had obtained the licenses for the World of Darkness at the time, used a very successful crowdfunding campaign to publish Wraith the Oblivion 20th anniversary edition on August 8th, 2018. 
Over the lifetime of the game, it has been supported, as all games in the line, with a line of supplemental books and materials, and these releases expanded on the game's mechanics and setting. Now, some of you may have heard of the various guild book titles as they broke down the various Wraith guilds, locations in the setting, various character types, and some generic style game guides. The overall concept for Wraith is a pretty dark one. The characters have recently died and find themselves in the afterlife. However, it isn't a pleasant one. So they have a choice to make. Try to find the way to ascend into the true afterlife, which is called transcendence in the game get themselves involved in the politics of the citizens of the afterlife, or succumb to the oblivion, which is dreaded by all of the newly deceased as it devours your soul. It needs to be noted that wraiths draw strength from whatever passions that are holding them to the living world. So to say that in English, each character has what's defined as a fetter, which represents an object, place, or person that binds them to the world of the living. It's a passion, which is an emotion they haven't resolved. Also, each character has a shadow, which is a secondary personality that's doing everything it can to have the Wraith self-destruct. I said this a lot last week, but I'm only going to say it once this week. None of these games in the world of darkness are for younger kiddos. If you want to play a game with your young kids, I'd suggest a game of Toon instead. Just saying. So, we discussed the afterlife being the setting for Wraith the Oblivion. However, the afterlife of the game is divided into two main regions. The Shadowlands, which is a darkened reflection of the living world. Wraiths can explore everything about this world as they would have during their mortal life. However, in order to interact with it, they need special ghostly powers called Arcanoi. We'll discuss Arcanoi further in a minute. The other region, which goes deeper into the underworld as it were, is called the Tempest. Much like the water-based name Sharer, this version of the Tempest is a churning sea, but not of water. There are islands of stable reality in there, but there are all kinds of politics and fighting going on there. I mean, there's a, a ton of political intrigue going on in the Tempest, which would make it tempting for a storyteller to base their story in. There's a lot more going on with the background here, but I think the basics are enough to make the point that I wanted to make. If it interests you, again, pick up a copy of the game. All right, so with the background out of the way, let's get into the system itself. First off, we discussed the overall game system itself last week, so let's just agree right now that unless I specifically give a difference between one of these games and Vampire the Masquerade, assume you mechanically play it the same way. So, let's get into the Wraith-specific stuff. Pathos, Corpu, and Arkanoi are very important parts of the Wraith system. Pathos can be best described as an emotional energy. After all, the characters are dead. Pathos is obtained by the Wraith drawing on their passions, which we detailed a few minutes ago. The Pathos gained can and is used to power their Arkanoi abilities, to help resist their shadow, and to heal their corpus. Corpus is the Wraith equivalent of health. Since the Wraith is dead, physical damage doesn't really apply here. Corpus is a representation which gives an ability to maintain their physical integrity. Needless to say, if the corpus falls to zero, the wraith might have to undergo a harrowing, which is a fight between the wraith and its shadow for control. Finally, there's Arkanoi. These are the magical abilities wraiths can use. However, there are guilds that specialize in the use of the powers. It should be noted that guilds are against the law, but they still exist in secret, and characters can be in one of these with storyteller approval. So, here are the Arkanoi. Oh, and I'll name the guilds who specialize in them. Inhabit, the possessing of inanimate objects, the Artificer's Guild. Keening, inducing emotion through song, Shantour's Guild. 
Argos, Underworld Travel, focusing on the Tempest, Harbinger's Guild. Pandemonium, consider this to be traditional shenanigans. It's the Haunter's Guild. Moliate, Bodily Transfiguration, Masker's Guild. Lifeweb, manipulate fetters and their connections to the wraiths possessing them, Monitor's Guild. Fatalism, reading a wraith's past, present, and future, Oracle's Guild. Castigate, taming the shadows of other wraiths, Pardoner's Guild. Embody, manifesting in the mortal world, Proctor's Guild. Puppetry, possessing mortals, Puppeteer's Guild. Phantasm, interacting with mortals' dreams, Sandman's Guild. Outrage, use of telekinetic force, I uh, think poltergeists, spooks guild. Usury, manipulating and drawing on the emotional power of pathos, it's the usurer's guild. As you can see, each Arkanoi has its own guild that specializes in it, so there's lots of options if you want to use them in your own game. Reviews of Wraith the Oblivion were positive, with overall reviews averaging about 8.5 out of 10. However, those reviews didn't lead to a lot of award nominations or wins. So let's move on to the fifth and final book of the original five. Changeling the Dreaming was written by Mark Ryan Hagen and released by White Wolf at Gen Con in July of 1995. In 1996, it got a player's guide supplement, which brought more abilities, legacies, flaws, and merits to the game to expand the options for players. The second edition of the game was released at Gen Con on August 7th, 1997. And the 20th anniversary edition was released on September 13th, 2017. It's a very basic history of the creation, but we covered a lot of the background in the overall rundown of the World of Darkness in last week's episode. The characters in Changeling are playing Faye. Now, there's a lot of material that's been written over the years about Faye. For the purposes of Changeling, let's just agree that Faye are creatures of dreams who draw magical power, as well as their very existence from glamour or dreams of mankind. That being said, while a changeling is typically a fairy child swapped for a human baby, in this game, a changeling is a fey soul born into a human body. What happens is that right around the time of puberty, if not a bit before, they undergo what's called the chrysalis, which is the magical awakening of the fey soul. So once that happens, the character now exists in both the real world and the fey world at the same time. Changelings are part of what's known as a kith, which is basically different species or types of fey. And to top that off, each changeling is part of what's called a seeming, which is a grouping by age. Now, fans of the Dresden Files series of books are aware of the Seely and the Unseely fey. In Changeling, they also exist. The Seely court are what would be seen as the good guys. They're the peacekeepers, protectors of the weak, and they hold to the ideals of chivalry. They also want to see the mortal world and the fey world join together. They also have a code they follow. Death before dishonor, love conquers all, beauty is life, and never forget a debt. The unseely court are basically the opposite side of the fey coin. Everything the seely court stands for, the unseelies want to mock and or undo. They are fans of chaos and change, and they have a code of their own that they follow. Change is good. Glamour is free, honor is a lie, passion before duty. Again, if you've read the Dresden Files, all of these should sound familiar, and they're not all that different here. Now let's take a quick look at the standard kiths of Changeling. Boggin, workers and busybodies. They would be the house fairies and gnomes. Think Dobby from Harry Potter. Eshu, African or Indian spirits. They're the travelers, storytellers, and adventurers. Knocker, that's N-O-C-K-E-R. 
technological beings like dwarves and gremlins. Oh yeah, the, these aren't your D&D dwarves, by the way. They're a little more shadow run, in my opinion. Puka, the tricksters, shape changers, and animal spirits. Redcap, murderers and cannibals, monsters and hobgoblins. Again, the Redcap has appeared in Dresden and is very much the same as Redcaps in this game. Satyr, lovers and revelers. You know, we've seen this before. You know, Pan. The city, nobility, lords and ladies, elves. Slua, keepers of secrets, bogeymen and shadows. And finally, Troll. Honor-bound warriors, titans, and giants. Now, there were a ton of changes made through the various editions, but these held pretty much true throughout the history of Changeling. Changeling was the worst review of the initial five books in the line, averaging about 7.5 out of 10, and its overall sales showed. Next up on the tour, we take a quick detour to look at the three alternate versions White Wolf released before they got back into the unique games for the line. First up is Vampire the Dark Ages. Written by Jennifer Hartshorn and Ethan Skemp, it was based on the framework established by Mark Ryan Hagen, who also gets a designer credit, and was released in March of 1996. The game is initially set in medieval Europe in 1197, however the second edition, titled Dark Ages Vampire and released in 2002, sets the game in 1230. But this game also got a 20th anniversary edition on July 29th, 2015, and they set their game in 1242. Whichever version you're using, the idea is the same. The designers chose a particular year of medieval history in order to be able to more tightly fit the vampire system into it. One major change between Dark Ages and Masquerade is that in Dark Ages, pretty much everybody knows that vampires exist. This would be because towns were a lot smaller during medieval times. This also means that it's really hard for vampires to hide their actions, so it takes a whole lot more to be able to do that. However, vampires hold a lot of power in this version, but that's all balanced by all of the other beings of the world of darkness, such as werewolves, changelings, wraiths, and mages, because they also show up in this version. In other words, it's a world of darkness soup set in medieval times. Reviews for Vampire Dark Ages were decent, as it averaged about 7.5 out of 10, and it sold well enough for the various editions to be released. Insofar as gameplay style and mechanics, they stay pretty much the same as in Masquerade. Alright, the second alternate version we're looking at is Werewolf the Wild West. Designed by Justin Akili and Ethan Skemp, the book was released on May 30th, 1997. The overall idea was that this version of the game takes place during the entirety of the Wild West period of American history. The one change to the basics of werewolf in this version is that the characters are werewolves from various Native American tribes, and they're defending what they call the Pure Lands from the Storm Eater, which is a bane set to corrupt it. This version got six supplements before it was discontinued in 1999. However, in 2014, Onyx Path Publishing released an expansion pack, which allowed for players to basically port this game into the 20th anniversary edition of Werewolf the Apocalypse. Reviews of this game were good, if you were a player who'd never played Werewolf the Apocalypse. Those players and reviewers gave an average of 7 out of 10. However, reviews from gamers who'd actually played the original version? <laughs> Not so good. It averaged about 2 out of 10. One of the biggest complaints was that the developers used too broad of a time span, which resulted in too much information needed in order to play the game appropriately. This was also major when you compared it to Vampire Dark Ages, which was set during a single year. 
The third and final entry on this list is Mage the Sorcerer's Crusade. Designed by Phil Bricado and Rachel Udell, this version of Mage was released in 1998. Much like the previous two items on this list, Mage the Sorcerer's Crusade has a different setting than its original. This version of Mage is set during the Renaissance, and this version focuses on the very beginning of the fight between traditionalists and technocrats, which was spelled out in the original version of Mage. The setting, and therefore period-correct terminology and actions, are really the primary difference between Mage the Sorcerer's Crusade and Mage the Ascension. This book sold like gangbusters in France in July and August of 1998. However, that's pretty much the only place it sold well. In fact, it and Werewolf the Wild West sold so poorly, they increased the financial issues White Wolf Publishing had and led to their cancellation along with Changeling the Dreaming. Now, before White Wolf got back into brand new games for the World of Darkness line, they released one more book. However, while it was based on and required the use of Vampire the Masquerade, its release was, and still is in many circles, celebrated for opening up the World of Darkness to parts of the world not previously tapped. Kindred of the East, designed by Robert Hatch and released in February of 1998, brought Vampire the Masquerade into Asia. The main focus of this book is China, and the book introduces Asian vampires called Kwai Jin. Kwai Jin are the player characters in Kindred of the East, and they live on Qi. Another unique spin in this book is that the Kwai Jin are created from humans who did evil things during their lives and returned to their bodies after death. The idea is that they're following the path of enlightenment so they can attain a higher state of being. So, obviously vampires in Kindred of the East don't come from Cain. Instead, their origins come from the divine August personage of Jade. Again, Kindred of the East, much like Vampire the Masquerade, does a phenomenal job of laying out a rich history for its game, and I could literally go on for hours about it. But we've still got a lot of books to cover, so I'll just recommend you can grab a copy of this. I do want to hit on the concept of Qi, since I mentioned it a minute ago. Qi is absorbed by the Kwai Jin. This is done for younger vampires by drinking the blood of a mortal, like the traditional vampire. Where things get different is that older Kwai Jin can draw Qi from the environment, which is really cool. There are also two kinds of Qi, black and scarlet, which are linked to Yin, death, and Yang, life. Needless to say, key can be used to power supernatural powers, and the type of key used determines the type of power it can work with. Fourteen books were published to support Kindred of the East, which is one of the largest supplement support printings for White Wolf. This game also sold well all over the world. However, it never seemed to get a revised edition, so the original is the only thing out there as of now. And since it's out of print, unless you've got a used game or used bookstore, you'll need to purchase the PDF, which you can legally do so from multiple sites. So to this point, the World of Darkness had focused on playing the types of creatures that would normally be the bad guys of a traditional tabletop role-playing game. The next release changed that up a bit. Hunter the Reckoning, designed by Andrew Bates, Phil Bricado, Ken Cliff, Greg Fountain, Ed Hall, Jess Heinick, Michael Lee, Richard Thomas, Mike Tinney, and Stuart Week, was released in November of 1999. The inspiration for the game came from the ending of Wraith the Oblivion, which was called Ends of Empire. The uh, TLDR on that is that the underworld was engulfed and overwhelmed, which led to a huge increase in the number of spirits and zombies in the real world. So, bring on the hunters. 
Hunters are regular vanilla humans who become aware of those things that go bump at the night. You know, vampires, werewolves, goblins, ghosts, yada, 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 yada. They decide to fight back and become monster hunters. Now, in the original edition of the game, they learn of the supernatural from voices called heralds or messengers, which would also imbue them with insight and power. However, in the just-released 5th edition, which we'll get to in a minute, hunters don't get imbued. In the new edition, hunters are a bit unorganized. They don't have the knowledge of the supernatural as they did in the first edition, so they have to lean on each other for information. Because, as has been the case through both versions, the rest of the world has no clue about the supernatural. In 5th edition, though, they do have HunterNet, which is an anonymous internet forum they can use to share what information they have. Now, when creating characters, the player chooses a creed. They are, and I'm not going to get into definitions because I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Avengers, Defenders, Hermits, Innocents, Judges, Martyrs, Redeemers, Visionaries, and Waywards. Each of these creeds have their own philosophies that shape how they relate to the hunt and what their weaknesses are. And by the way, if you watch The Walking Dead, I can guarantee you, you'll find an example of each of those creeds during the show. But I'm going to let you decide who goes where. The overall mechanics of the game, like every other game in the line, run off of Vampire the Masquerade with a few adjustments made for the specifics of Hunter. So, I mentioned the 5th edition a few moments ago. First off, while it's called the 5th edition, it's actually only the second core book. They chose 5th edition because all of the other titles are on that edition number. Also, the publishing studio for this edition is Renegade Game Studios, and Justin Achille gets designer credit on this one. And for the record, the new edition just dropped as of the recording of this show. It dropped on June 3rd, 2022, and it should be available at a game shop near you. And if you're curious about how well Hunter sold or about how popular it was, I should point out that the first edition of the game got 24 supplements produced for it, and it sold consistently well around the globe. Reviews were consistently in the 8 or 9 out of 10 range, and critics tended to enjoy it, even if some felt the need to nitpick the most minute of details. Alright, so after switching gears and being the hunter instead of the hunted, we're going to go back to being supernatural. Mummy the Resurrection was released on March 19th, 2001. There were 14 creators listed for the game, including Justin Achille, the Week Brothers, Jim Looking Eagle Estes, and Graham Davis. Now, the reason there were so many listed creators is that this wasn't the first edition of Mummy ever seen in the World of Darkness. However, the first two versions were softcover supplements for Vampire the Masquerade, which played off the rules and settings as they were set up there. This time, the game and the setting are all set up for the mummies, instead of squeezing them into a vampire-based game. Now, it does have a modern setting, but the mummies are resurrected from way back in the day and are trying to live and survive in the modern world. For the record, these mummies are referred to as Amenti, which were a new creation for Mummy the Resurrection. So, mummies are created from the spell of life given out by Osiris. The type of mummy that rises after the spell is cast depends on the combination of Tem'ak, or spirits from their first life, that combine with the Nehemsen, which are spirits from their second life. Needless to say, all mummies in this game are in their third life. There are five types of Tem'ak. Ka, the part of the soul that protects the body. Ba, grants strength of character and free thinking. Sahu, drives the morality of the person. Ku, drives creativity and inspiration. Kaibit, generates drive, ambition, and aggression. There are also various types of resurrected mummies. 
Tomb Watchers, Scroll Bearers, Night Suns, Spirit Scepters, Unbandaged Ones, and Judged Ones. Now, normally I would have given you a brief explanation of each of these, but the sources I was using to gather the information were contradictory, and to me, they didn't make a lot of sense. So I'll list them, and if you're curious, pick up a used copy of the game or a PDF. What I do have information on are the six paths of magic and sciences in the game. Called Hakao, they dictate or guide the basic specialty of a mummy. Alchemy allows the creation of potions, poisons, and cures. Amulets, creation of charms for protection and ability boosts. Celestial, command nature, alter fate and fortune. Effigy, create artifacts that come alive and serve the creator. Necromancy, influence the underworld and the dead. Nomenclature, mastery of the language of the divine. There are also multiple resurrection factions in the game. They are the Cult of Isis. They worship, wait for it, Isis. To them, Amanti are the chosen of the gods. Children of Osiris, once vampires, they were cured by Osiris. Shemsu Heru, follow Horus the Avenger. Eset A, dedicated to finding all of Osiris's body parts and restore them to the land of the living. Ashuki Corporation, they're used to build a better world. By the way, in case it wasn't obvious, there's a lot of Egyptian influence on this game. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> the game got decent reviews, averaging around 7 out of 10, and it sold fairly well as well. However, this version of the game got the one version and not a lot of supplements to support it. Next up, Vampire got yet another alternate setting. Victorian Age Vampire was designed by Justin Achille, Craig Blackwelder, Brian Campbell, Will Hindmark, and Ari Maramel. It was released to the world on September 30th, 2002, and dropped the vampire game we all know and love into the Victorian era of Europe. To be more specific, the game plays out during the years 1880 to 1887. This range of years was settled on after the debacle of Werewolf the Wild West previously. Now, I said the game was focusing on Europe, but there are also parts of it in India, Africa, and the United States. Also, to play this game, you need either Vampire the Masquerade or Dark Ages Vampire. The developers decided to focus more on the changes to the game for the new setting and decided they could use the same core mechanics from those games. In this version of the game, we begin to see some of the changes from the medieval setting of Dark Ages that would continue into the Masquerade. Vampires have stopped lording over humans and have instead fallen back into the shadows, attempting to hide themselves from humans in the hope that their existence would no longer be a given. And for the most part, it's been working. In this setting, most people think vampires are just a dark tale. They fear them arriving in the night, but most people believe they don't exist. The bad guys in this game, aside from the various clans and sects of vampires, are witch hunters, the Inquisition, because nobody expects the Inquisition, secret societies, sorcerers and witches, werewolves, fae, and ghosts. Oh my. The inspiration for this game came from Gothic literature, and in fact is the main theme of the game. Other themes from Victorian times included in the game are British imperial oppression, social reform, and sexual repression. Yay. <laughs> the system got two supplements released for it in its lifetime, but much like other releases, it didn't get another edition. However, it was fairly well-reviewed, with an average of 7.5 out of 10. It also sold fairly well, and inspired future supplements for the Vampire line, with some of their characters being used in the 2020 supplement Fall of London for Vampire the Masquerade. Next up on our tour is Demon the Fallen. 
developed by Michael B. Lee, Steve Kenson, Lucian Solban, Greg Stolze, and Adam Tenworth. It released in November of 2002. The characters in Demon are literally demons, fallen angels who were condemned to hell after the long war with heaven. The idea of Demon the Fallen is that due to a whole lot of other things going on in the world of darkness, the gates of hell have weakened, allowing the weakest of the fallen to escape. However, there's a catch. If they want to survive and continue to exist on Earth, they must find a suitable host. What constitutes a suitable host? I'm glad you asked. Bodies with weak souls. In this game, those are defined as comatose patients, severe drug addicts, the severely or clinically depressed, and suicidal people. And yes, some of this can be considered to be inappropriate today, especially the inference that people with depression or suicidal ideation have weak souls. But it's how it was written in 2002, so I am reporting it as it was then. It doesn't mean I agree with it, just so we're clear. So what we get once the demon enters the body is one body with the demon in control, following its own agenda while still trying to manage the life of its host. Of course, they're bound to demonic superiors who have their own agendas that they need the demon to follow. The fallen, or demon, is protected from the full memory of their torment in hell, primarily because they're screened by the memories and feelings of the mortal soul they replaced. In some cases, those are almost as bad. The primary antagonists of the game are the numerous other demonic spirits that have escaped over the centuries, a variety of human enemies that recognize them for what they are, and all of the other creatures of the world of darkness. Okay, so with the background covered, let's get into the specifics of the game. At character creation, all characters must choose a house and a faction. They also have special magical powers they can use, called invocations or lore. There are two lores that all demons can use. Fundament, which lets them suspend the laws of physics to perform superhuman feats, and Humanity, which lets them commune with mortals and manipulate them. Other lores they get are determined by their house, so let's talk about houses first. Defiler, the first to succumb to Hell's isolation. They come from the angels who had dominion over the seas. Devil, they come from the angels who stood before God himself and were given authority over all the other circles of angels. For the record, Lucifer is in this house. Devourer. These were the angels of the wild. They're reckless, violent, and impulsive. Fiend. They had the ability to sense the future. Malefactor. These were the angels of the forge, of tools, and of the earth. Scourge. They were once the guardian angels. Slayer. They were once known as reapers. You know, the angels of death. We also touched on factions, so let's lay those out. I'd normally put a short line or two on each of these, but their descriptions are pretty deep, so we're just going to list them out here due to time. Cryptics, Faustians, Luciferians, Raveners, and Reconcilers. Even without descriptions, I bet you can figure out what they do. For the record, when the host of a demon is killed, the demon is not. They either find a new host or they get pulled back into the abyss. To kill a demon, there are two methods you use. You can have the demon's soul devoured by another demon, or, members of the Inquisition have a ritual they can use to basically unmake a high-torment demon, but this really doesn't do anything against low-torment demons. Nine supplements in all were released to support the system, and it had fair sales and fair reviews. Okay, I know we're running long, but I've got one more subject to cover on today's tour. The Time of Judgment is a series of scenario books for the World of Darkness that were published to close out the original World of Darkness in preparation for the Chronicles of Darkness. There were four hardback books released in the line, one each for Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf the Apocalypse, and Mage the Ascension, and one book that covered all of the other settings in the line. 
Vampire Gehenna released in January of 2004 and provided four scenarios to help end a Vampire the Masquerade game. Wormwood, which is a take on Noah's Ark. Fair is Foul, which brings Lilith into the fight against Cain. Nightshade, which ties together a whole lot of small metaplot hooks and brings Saulot into the game. And Crucible of God. This is definitely post-apocalyptic and it rewrites the world. Werewolf Apocalypse dropped in February of 2004, and it also had four scenarios. The Last Battleground, which painted the apocalypse as a great battle in the spirit realm. A Tribe Falls, covered what would happen if one of the existing tribes fell, quote, to the worm, end quote. Weaver Ascendant. The Weaver is the source of all problems in the cosmos, so the characters have to deal with it. And Ragnarok. A giant asteroid hits the world, and it's all in against the forces of the worm. Mage Ascension released in March of 2004, and it had five scenarios to draw from. Judgment ties a whole lot of strands together and allows all of the characters to ascend. The revolution will be televised. Civil war in the technocracy. The earth will shake. See the Ragnarok entry from Werewolf, though adjusted to the mage system. A whimper, not a bang. A previously unknown alien life form consumes the world's magic, which makes mages extinct. And hell on earth. What happens if the Nefandi win the battle? Time of Judgment released in March 2004 and provided three or four scenarios for Changeling the Dreaming, Demon the Fallen, Hunter the Reckoning, Kindred of the East, and Mummy the Resurrection. Obviously, Wraith had already been canceled by this point, so they didn't get an ending scenario. It should also be noted that Mind's Eye Theater, which we've addressed a few times over the course of the show, it was the LARP version of the game, it also got its own set of endings called the Laws of Judgment. Now, once these books were released, that was supposed to be it for the World of Darkness line. However, as we've seen over the course of the past couple of shows, it just keeps coming back. But not before the Chronicles of Darkness got their shot. And that's going to bring this week's tour to a close. So, next week, it's going to actually be our first three-part episode. Part three's coming up. We're going to cover the entire Chronicles of Darkness. I don't care how long i got to go. We're wrapping this up in three episodes. Of course, I encourage you to check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. In this week's show, we build on the massive combats we had in the last episode, and I lead you through what happens next. Also, my group didn't play last week, so there's no campaign recap. That means this episode is creation only. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for license-free, royalty-free music for your next project. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Bad GM Productions. Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube Bad GM Productions. Twitch, Bad GM, and you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. Next week, we close out our massive look into the various books of the world of darkness by dropping into the Chronicles of Darkness. That might just run longer than we did this week. (laughs) That means I'm going to need a couple monsters before I do that one. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.